You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. chasers of light to the purveyors of pictures to all of you listening around the world this is the f11 photography podcast i am your host kevin deal along with your other host mr brandon gory yeah we do it folks yes that was a very short How's it, how's it going? Yeah, it's good to be back in the studio. Feels nice. We've got our guest, Doss, here. Good to have him. I'll let you introduce him, Kevin. Yes, I'm going to introduce Doss here in just a second. But first, I'm going to talk about today's sponsor, uh, Dehancer. Of, of those of you out there who shoot, uh, if you shoot film and the film prices are uh, making you cry, uh, I totally understand. Uh, film prices are very expensive. However... We have, bec- we have come a long way with uh, technology, and we now have uh, film emulations out there that are pretty awesome. And uh, Dehancer is actually the first software I've seen out there that does a pretty good job of emulating the physical light hitting an emulsion. Uh, I find that a lot of times uh, with film emulations, they'll try to nail the colors, they'll try to nail the grain. They don't really nail the physical part of it, uh, which is a very organic part of shooting film. Dehancer, in my opinion, does a great job of that. Uh, Check out uh, the link in the description below for 10% off, and you can use the code GORI, that's G-O-R-R-I-E, to get 10% off your copy of Dehancer today. But in studio, we have a special guest, and that would be Mr. Doss Miller. Yes, thank you. Welcome. (laughs) Yes. So uh, I'll tell a backstory here real quick. Um, during the pandemic, uh, when everything was on lockdown and everybody was seeking human interaction, uh, Brandon was not seeking human interaction. He locked himself in like a hermit and was just like <laughs> totally happy during during lockdown. But uh, the rest of us, uh, we were seeking human interaction. And so uh, Clubhouse came along and that's where I first ran across DOS. That's right. Uh, I, 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 DOS is not a common name. So I see D-A-U-S-S and I'm like, yeah, you know, I'd keep seeing him in the rooms and he'd have really uh, uh, insightful things to say. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, BS on Clubhouse I saw going around, people trying to sell snake oil and all that. But uh, Doss uh, kept it real and all of his uh, contributions, I, 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 he, he stuck out to me. And I remember he had mentioned that he was moving uh, from uh, the Indiana area to Texas to Austin. And so, uh, I kind of kept that in the back of my mind and uh, we kind of stayed in touch. We finally met face to face at WPPI in March. Um, we we're both at uh, the cheetah stand. Uh, yeah. Those guys are awesome. By yeah. The way. Those guys are crazy. Awesome. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, look what they gave me. All right. And then they gave me the um, right there. They gave me the uh, parabolic. Oh, nice. So I'm checking that out. It is cool. The man. parabolic. Yeah. The 38 inch. The horn. Yeah. The QBP <laughs> QPB uh, 38. I just did a review of that on my YouTube channel. It's really cool. Parabolic yeah, air reflector. So, but uh, welcome to the show. Uh, 
your portfolio is awesome, but as I start every interview off, I want to ask you, what got you into photography? Why, how did you get to where you are today? Whew, that's a loaded question. Um, <clears throat> photography was first introduced to me um, as, a, as a kid. Um, I was probably, geez, five or six years old. Um, my, one of my older brothers was a photographer in high school, so there was just like studio equipment in, in my mom's, um, in my mom's house. We had a dark room in the, in the basement. Um, so it was just kind of around, um, my dad, uh, was, a not a photographer, but photo photography was a part of his business. Um, so the cameras and just that stuff was just always around. So I just kind of had a camera with me at all times. So, um, probably around high school is when I started to really like seriously dive into, into photography, took a photography class, loved my instructor, um, and, uh, kind of dove deep into it. Uh, from there, I started my first business right after high school, um, and just kind of organically became a wedding photographer slash portrait photographer. And then just kind of snowballed from there. Now you mentioned, uh, it was in a basement. So I'm going to assume this was in Indiana cause they don't have those here in yeah, Texas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I lived in Indiana until about a year and a half ago. What, uh, what part? Um, Carmel. Carmel. Um, yeah. That's so funny. I just did uh, a job for the Renaissance there, uh, for the hotel. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. I was okay. So I used to live in Michigan and, uh, I was, you know, I was not expecting cuisine to be, I was like, I'm in, I'm in Indiana. Like it's, I mean, I, I was like joking with my, my, my coworkers I was like, we'll be lucky if we find a good restaurant here. I was completely <laughs> wrong. Carmel has insane cuisine. Yeah. Carmel. I mean, it's a great, a great spot. You know, one of the top cities in the, in the country to live. Yeah. And it's just kind of like escaped me. I was just like, I was like, Oh, it's, you know, whatever. It's just this little suburb of Indianapolis. I didn't really pay much attention to it. And then when I got there, I was like, Oh my gosh, no, this, this is actually a really cool town. Yeah, yeah. Like they have a cool little, uh, uh, made up historic looking downtown, <laughs> a new, a new historic downtown there. Yeah. The, they had like this, uh, this shop there for, they sell like, uh, uh, wedding cakes and stuff. And it was all really white and bright and there was lace. It was, it was just a cool spot, man. Mm -hmm. Really, really beautiful city. So why did you leave? <laughs> why did I leave? Another loaded question. Um, I had, like I said, I'd been, uh, in Indiana my whole life, a photographer in Indiana, my whole life basically. And I just kind of reached a ceiling there, um, ages ago, probably 10, 15 years ago, um, was traveling a lot to, um, you know, to work at the level that I wanted to work. And, um, as my family grew and as, you know, I kind of wanted to, to ground myself a little bit more, I wanted to work locally a lot more and it just wasn't, it didn't have, have what I needed there. So, um, began looking at other cities, um, and places to go where I could work locally. Now, now a what, more often. Now you ended up in Austin, which I don't care what other cities you were considering it was the total right choice because we're all Austinites here now. <laughs> but no, uh, really, though, what other cities were you considering checking out? Uh, when it came to moving with my family, it wasn't like I was was. What drew me to Austin was community, um, and that like that first draw in was what first caused me to consider moving. So it's not like I was like, I want to move. Let me see what cities I want to go to. Um, a friend of mine, um, 
suggested I look into Austin and I did. And then that's kind of what was like, oh yeah, I can probably move <laughs> and find, you know, find better opportunity in a different city. Well, and you said you were finding yourself, despite the fact that you were living in Carmel, the majority of your work wasn't in Carmel. You're having, to, you're finding yourself having to travel. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. And, and that's, that's actually a good point. If you're, if you're traveling anyway, you might as well move your home base somewhere where you're going to be more happy. Right. And it's kind of more, kind of more centrally located. I mean, depending on if your your work is in the Sun Belt or not. If you get a lot of work in the Sun Belt, Austin's a great centrally located place to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, like you have the Silicon Valley people because there's so many Californians who moved here. There's always direct flights to San Jose, San Francisco, mm-hmm. Los Angeles, all out of Austin Bergstrom. So, yep. definitely, definitely, and of course, you can go any any city's gonna uh, have a direct flight to New York if you have something up there. So, yep. Yep. or Miami. So, yeah. Yeah, not, not not bad. Well, we're glad you're here because you're too. physically in the studio. I mean, we've done some remote remote interviews, and they're they're cool. But there's just something there's something cool about having somebody in studio and being able to interact when you're in the same room. So for sure, thank you for coming out. Um, so you aren't just a portrait wedding photographer. You 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 actually spin a lot of different plates, and this is a something that is uh, fascinating to me because I know a lot of photographers who take really great pictures, but they run really terrible businesses <laughs> because they just think that, Oh, well I show up, I take really good pictures and I, I run a great business and I'm, I'm and that's it. That's all I got to do. And mm. I'm like, mm, no, mm, no, yeah. that's why you're broke. Yeah. <laughs> like, so uh, talk about the importance of uh, being a successful photographer and what you really have to do besides taking good pictures, because I I would say that maybe 10% of it is being good at taking pictures. And then the other 90% is stuff that a lot of really good photographers don't realize they need to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You said a lot of things to respond to in there. Um, Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) uh, I love, I love that you said I spent a lot of plates. I love, love putting it, putting it that way. Um, And I agree with that. One of the, the biggest things I think photographers forget to think about um, outside of taking great photos and honestly taking great photos is not that hard to do these days. Um, there's a lot of great photographers, a lot of great artists, creatives that can take great photos. Um, what is, I feel like paramount outside of taking, like having a great product, which is the great photos is delivering an experience to your client that is worth talking about. Um, and that means, you know, how you communicate. That means, um, what their experience is when they're, uh, one-on-one with you or, um, whatever touch points you have, like it needs to be, um, smooth and, and something that they don't experience all the time. It's gotta be different. It's gotta stand out from all the other bazillion photographers that they might encounter, um, uh, for whatever needs they have. So. I, I noticed that you're a Nikon shooter. Um, Kevin also informed me that you're a phase one shooter. And I understand that um, if you're shooting phase one, it's you don't really have to ask that question. Why are you shooting phase one? But, <laughs> yeah. but I am I am curious um, from a gear perspective, what what got you into Nikon and what kept you with Nikon? That's a good question, um, especially like into the digital age of things. Um, I can't say like as a diehard Nikon user that they've been on top of the game the whole time. Um, so I, I mean, like I said before, my dad was a photographer and my first film cameras were Nikon. And just as I got into business and, um, all of that, 
it just made sense to stay with Nikon and um, use Nikon glass and all of that. Um, but as things, I remember I went digital in 2001 um, and my first digital Nikon, I believe was the D100 and um, uh, stuck with that for a little while. And then, you know, as other camera makers started to, you know, release their digitals, I could feel, you know, the technology lagging a little bit as other other camera makers were were kind of up in the game and Nikon playing catch up a little bit. But um, I had all of my Nikon equipment. Um, I've I just I, there's something about the Nikon system um, that just speaks to me. You know, it's just um, I've used all kinds of other cameras. I've used, you know, Canon and Fuji and all, all the other, other camera makers. But there's just something about the way the Nikon feels and how the buttons are, the ergonomics of it just kind of, it's just made for me, I feel like. Yeah, it's like grab and go, you know? And and when it comes down to it, you can almost just shoot with your right hand if you mm -hmm. really needed to. Yep, yep. Yeah, well, it's interesting because uh, Brandon and I are actually going to do a, a swap episode. So I shoot on Canon as my primary system and he shoots as Nikon on his primary okay. system. And so we're going to do something where we switch. So we're going to like... One of the questions I'm going to ask you, and he's going to ask, I'm going to ask this to Vanessa Joy next week because she's going to be in here, but uh, uh, I'm going to be shooting on a Nikon camera here in a few weeks. So <laughs> sell me on what I need to look out for. What you need to look out for. Yeah. What do, what do I need to expect on a Nikon? Like uh, ergonomics, uh, what, what do I need to look out for on that? Huh. Um, I mean, it's, it's comfortable. It's, I think compared to like, I think the closest comparison is probably to Canon. So um, I like just as a photographer, I, I'm I'm a technical person, but I'm also just like a like an organic, um, abstract, creative person, too. And I feel like Brandon loves those types of people. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm the technical guy and he's the abstract. Yeah, cool. so we're, we're, you're, you're kind of the balance of both. Yeah, of I'm like I'm like I think I'm a 50 50 blend of both of those. And Canon, I feel like, expresses that, that um, you know, the more creative and the Nikon is a little, leans in a little more to the, to the technical. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I kind of get that from like the menu systems and where the, how the buttons are and all of that, the ergonomics of it. It's a little more, a little more square and chunky and, and Canon's a little more like curvy and can, can you flip the dials because i think nikon the front dials the aperture and the back one's the shutter speed right by default uh yeah i believe so yeah that's you, totally backwards of canon like that yeah but as a matter of fact uh, fuji made an x they make an xs10 that's being discontinued but i tried it out and it had the nikon setup mm -hmm. i was like that's okay yeah. i'll just change it and they're like nope nope <laughs> i was like i can't change it i'm like no I, if i can't get by my exposure triangle i'm out like, i had to tap out on that camera but uh, yeah yeah so so uh, maybe maybe when i borrow the, ca the camera from from uh, brendan maybe i'll i'll flip the dial so i can actually get around because yeah, yeah. i'll just like be changing the the aperture on accident <laughs> yeah that's what i was going to say that's one thing that's great about it is is the functionality of the buttons and what they do you can you can, it's customizable, like almost hundred percent. So, well, I will say first and foremost, and we talk about this on the show all the time. I hate fanboys. Like I hate, hate people who are like, I like Sony Nikon and, and Canon or shit. And you know, it's like, you get those people. And it's like, dude, like if you know your, if you know how to find an exposure triangle on a camera and you understand how the autofocusing system works on a camera, if you can't take good pictures on it, you're the problem. Yeah. Not the, not the, not the camera. Right. And, and so to my point I'm trying to make is 
Uh, even though I haven't touched a night, well, I've touched Nikon, but I haven't actually shot on a Nikon since about the time that you switched to digital. I uh, had a job and shooting like high school sports or something. It was my first job out of college and made me want to quit photography. <laughs> but uh, that was the last time I actually like went out and shot a professional job on a Nikon. So, uh, but I will say, a lot of photographers I run across, I'll be like, oh, wow, their work is just beautiful. And then I go like, like they're not con user. I'm like, okay, okay. So like I take notes, <laughs> they, the, the Z stuff is awesome. Mm-hmm. Like I can tell that the mm-hmm. results are there. And so, uh, you know, I, I want to give praise to Nikon, even though I don't use it just because I feel that we have too much fanboyism in this world. And people will think that like, oh, you can only be Canon or you can only be whatever. Nobody says that about Lumix, but <laughs> unless they shoot video, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but, uh, you know, it's just, it's my, that's my, I had to throw in a barb at somebody. I thought that, <laughs> that was the one I'd do. But no, I just, I, you know, I, I've, I've just noticed that Nikon is, is a, they make great stuff. I've heard some rumors that they might be having some financial issues, but I don't, I don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. So, but I hope, I hope not because, you know, that's the other thing is about fanboyism that pisses me off is people like, it's almost like they're rooting for the competitor to fail. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, 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 you don't understand. You want the competitor to succeed because then it, it, it makes your camera brand go, oh man, they have a, mm-hmm. they have a global shutter now. We need a global shutter. Like we got to come out with a global shutter, you know, or yeah. whatever. It's like, yeah, you want that competition. Yeah. It keeps the innovation growing and, and happening. Yeah. And I, I don't want Nikon to fail. I want Nikon to succeed. I, I don't want Canon to fail. I, I don't want, you know, I don't want Sony to fail. I want them all to succeed because at the end of the day, we, the consumer get to benefit. You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. I noticed that um, a lot of your outdoor work that you do, you use off-camera flash. Uh, I know why you use off-camera flash, because <laughs> it looks a hell of a lot better <laughs> than, than trying to pull up shadows, you know? But uh, what a... What, what are your favorite, like first and foremost, what, uh, kind of flash do you typically use strobe, whatever. And then what are your favorite types of modifiers you like to use when you do these really beautiful types of editorials? Uh, cause one thing I will give you a compliment on, and this is always, uh, to me, the, 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 the way I judge people in the off camera flash is how natural does it look? Mm-hmm. Does it, does it look like this really beautiful natural scene that has this really artificial flash to it? Yeah. I find that the majority of your stuff it, 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 you can barely tell there's a flash there mm-hmm. and that's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. By yeah the way. Thanks, man. But what, what do you use? What's your process? Like equipment wise? Uh, yeah. 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 Um, I'm a pro photo guy. I love, I love, um, all things pro photo, um, as much as, as I can, um, just the, the versatility in and out of the studio. So on like location, um, or in studio, they just have a, a line that works everywhere. Um, super consistent color and, and power wise. And I love that. Um, because shooting on location, typically working with, with, um, models or people, um, when that, when that moment happen, when happens, when that authentic expression happens, when that, you know, everything is, is position, position just right, you know, body pose and all the things, it's like this, this line of events that, that sparks in one single moment, if, Technically, it doesn't happen because the flash doesn't fire or it's off power or something weird happens. It's like you can't you can't I can't work like that, you know, so I like like to know that I can count on my equipment to do exactly what I want it to do in the exact moment that I want it to do. Um, And, you know, I know with with my pro photo gear, I'm not going to have any concerns. Do you have a particular type of modifier that you favor in a lot of those types of situations? Uh, Use a softer light usually. Uh, that's a great question. Um, it, I, f- I feel like each, each creative like vision 
requires a different, you know, different modifier. Um, I use bare bulb a lot of times, you know, people are, Oh, it's gotta be soft light. Oh, it's gotta be this or that. And it's like, you know, light is light. I take your side on this and here's why. Um, and I, I don't name names because our, our industry is very small, but there are people who their claim to fame in our industry is that they are like off camera flash wizards. And that's all they do on like Instagram is just like, here's my off camera flash tricks and whatever. But I've, I've always noticed like, and, and this bugs me is I'll see these guys who are like, look at this beautiful off camera flash and it'll be like golden hour and the sun will be like on the horizon and they'll use that as like the backlight and then they'll fill them with a soft box. I'm like, but the sun's harsh light. Like, why wouldn't you want to like, first of all, I would probably just turn them around right into the sun because I think that the sun is like the, one of the coolest forms of light you can use in that situation. When it's low, you get, you know, especially if you have like a, a, a whatever, a male model, you want that really nice prominent masculine jawline. It's like, use the shadows to your, your advantage. But mm-hmm. to your point about bare bulb, if you're in a situation where you're in a harsher lighting situation, maybe bare bulbs, the way to go, because it actually is a similar light to what you're dealing with. It's, it's more realistic to the scene. Mm-hmm. Right. And I find that sometimes it's a distraction when I see like a super soft light. And then like, there's all this other hard light around. Like I get it in a studio In a studio, you have carte blanche to do whatever you want. It's like, I'm creating, I'm doing like, but when you're in like a, an environmental portrait, I find that sometimes the lighting can be a distraction. If you're like using like a really like soft light, to fill in somebody's face. And it's like in a situation where it just doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. you know? So anyway, I just, I, I, that's what I want to say is like, Hey, I got your back on that. I'm, I'm glad you use bare bulb. I think that people are afraid of using hard light, but like hard light is one of the coolest things you can do. If you want to sculpt shadows, if you want to, uh, over accentuate something like a jawline, like I was saying, or just like, I just, got done doing a session uh with a, a model for an agency uh, right before we started this where she wanted like her obliques to show up and i was like great reflector put mm-hmm. that on there just bare bulb i turned it off the side and her obliques were just popping man <laughs> and it's like yeah but if i put a softbox on there it wouldn't wouldn't have been the same effect you yeah, know yeah i think the biggest thing is to understand what modifiers do and where where they are most effective, you know? Um, and that's why I said, you know, I, why I brought up bare bulb because a lot of, a lot of photographers that use off camera flash are scared of bare bulb, you know, for some reason, so oh, harsh shadows, that's scary, you know, whatever. Uh, let's just throw a big soft box on it and that solves all the issues, but that's not the case. So I it, think having an understanding of what they do is important. It is. It does make me scratch my head though, that like people are afraid to use hard light, but then they'll go take someone into the sunset and go take a picture of them at golden hour. It's like, that's find a harsher source of light than the freaking sun, man. You know, as you said, as you put so well that you are as technical as you are abstract, I'd like to know as a professional. Um, and first of all, I'd like to say that on your website, uh, you explain your process, uh, and your mentorships and how you go over concept building and mood board creation. Now, concept building can be a very abstract in your head above the shoulders sort of activity. How do you make that a repeatable thing when a lot of people, they usually wait for inspiration or motivation, or it's, you know, it's a very emotional, like almost fleeting thing for a lot of people. How do you make that repeatable and and what's your process there? Awesome. That's a great question. Um, so all of my clients now are, are typically like C-suite, um, you know, uh, business owners, entrepreneurs, um, that are doing a very specialized thing. So when it comes to creating a concept or an idea or, you know, putting like looks together, 
I really get to like dive into that individual person and their individual like service, um, basically. So it's like, what, what do they do? How do they do it? Who are they and who do they serve? And I can like use those, those, um, uh, data points basically to, to start my creative process. So it's, it's not like a, a plug and play or wait for inspiration kind of thing. It's like, these are my creative tools and I start from there and kind of, you know, start unpacking and then, um, decide how those pieces that I unpack get to start getting put together again. Cool. It sounds like the skill that's come about is, you know, what questions to ask these clients, mm. you know, how to get the information out of them that would give you the easiest time formulating a plan to move forward. Absolutely. That's, yeah. that's brilliant. Mm. And so, okay. And then, okay, you go through the shoot, you've got everything put together and again, in line with that balance between creativity and technicality, when you're culling uh, your photos, that's always, you know, that's always a, an interesting conversation we can have with ourselves as we're going through the, the many photos we've taken. What, what stands out for you? And I'll give an example is Kevin and I have talked about this. And when Kevin culls his photos, he's looking for um, more often than not, like immaculate technical things. Mm. And oftentimes if there's an exception, um, he'll make it. Whereas for me, I, I call and normally I'll just go through photos and I'll see a photo and it'll just hit me. I'll mm. just know. I'll just be like, Oh, that's a photo. I, mm. I won't bother to explain why I'll just let that be the photo. Mm -hmm. What is oh, your, man. what is your process? A great question. Uh, and just real quick, I love, I love that those two processes speak directly to your technical and, and <laughs> abstract styles. Um, and once again, I'm kind of a blend of the two. Um, culling is probably one of my least favorite things to do in my entire process. Um, and I, it just feels, it feels tedious to me after all the planning and the, the technical stuff that goes into creating the images. And a lot of times, um, once it gets to that point, I like during the shoot, I know, I know when we get the shot, like I know, I know once we've made the magic and the magic has happened and then we're just kind of shooting. Um, so when I'm calling, um, it, uh, very similar to you, I'll, I'll, the, the shot will, I'll feel it. I'll feel it when I see it. Um, and then everything else is kind of fill in after that. Uh, so, but when I feel that shot and I zero in on it, it's like, yes, it does have the technical aspects that I was, I was trying to create in that moment, but it also has, has the, the soul and the energy and the, you know, the expression and the, the, you know, that, that life that comes from the photos that you want, you know, the audience to feel. It's almost like you're recognizing like the, the pure essence of who you are creatively in that photo. That's why it speaks to you. Right. The, who I am creatively and, and who my subject is you mm -hmm. know, um, at their, at their core. That's awesome, man. Thanks. Yay. So one of the things Brandon touched up on with, uh, his last question is, you know, understanding your clients, uh, speaking of your clients, and this is something that you talk about on your website, you, you, you know, I think it's a really smart thing that photographers who are listening who are trying to build their business should pay attention to. You kind of set the stage. You say, Hey, are you a you know, six figure company sort of thing? Like, like you're, you're saying like, I can't, you're, you're, you're kind of weeding out people who are, that's like, Hey, I've got a $300 budget to do a branding photo session. And you're just like, nah, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like, mm -hmm. first of all, how do you, how did you get to that point? I understand it's years and years of experience. I'm not talking about the technical side of how good of pictures you take, because 
I think that once you hit a certain threshold as a photographer, you're good enough to do a lot of different things, even though you may not be the best photographer in the world. I know wedding photographers who take good pictures, mm-hmm. but not something that blows my mind, mm-hmm. but their clients are happy. They deliver what you talk about, the experience and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So like, I, I mean, I can find, you know, uh, dozens of photographers who can take pictures better than this person, but they're running a killer business. Yeah. And I do think that once you get above a certain threshold, it's more about focusing on the business. So Absolutely. I guess to the original, I'll reset my question, which is how did you establish your niche market? And I hate that word niche, but <laughs> how did you establish a market of, Hey, you basically have to be playing in this kind of financial area to hire me. Mm. How did you get there? Yeah. Um, before I dive into that completely, I think it's important to say, like piggyback on what you said, it's not about the photography, you know, like, yeah, we can, shit, we can all produce great photography. So, um, I have a certain set of skills that I've developed over a couple of decades, um, plus, and, um, you know, I feel like I've put in my, my time, <laughs> um, uh, as, like I said earlier, I kind of developed my my spot in the world as a wedding photographer. And, um, I am officially, officially retired. I shot my last wedding this past December. Um, that feels awesome. And, um, so to be in the space that I am now, uh, I get to command what, um, what my rates are. And I, I stand beside the value that I provide my clients. Um, and that's, that's really the bottom line, you know, like I, I know I produce great work and I know for a fact that my clients are going to, um, increase their marketing ROI because I produce high impact images that are going to direct eyeballs from where they are to what my clients are putting out. Um, so if, if my client is a six figure plus business owner, I know they're not going, going to need time for me to educate them why I'm charging what I'm charging. They will already know and they'll be prepared and excited for what we can do together for their business. And that's something that we've talked about uh, on this pod in the past. We did a a business episode and it's, it's totally true. People who are willing to pay you whatever, 20 or 30 grand to do a a session, uh, they, if they're already willing to pay you that much, uh, they, they already know that you're worth that much. Just the fact that they're having that conversation with you, you're worth that much. And I often find they're easier clients to work with because much easier. Yeah. Like it's the person at the bottom of the barrel who's just like, oh, hey, can you do this for a hundred dollars? They're the one who's going to have all these demands because you're going to put up, you know, if somebody, first of all, I wouldn't take the job, but if somebody's going to pay me a hundred dollars, I'm only going to put in a hundred dollars of effort. Right. (laughs) So, yeah. So, you know, I mean, and, and that's the, that's the problem I see with a lot of upcoming photographers is that they, and I get it when you start off, you say yes to pretty much anything because you're just wanting to learn how to do it. But when they establish a market for themselves, you know, it's like uh, these portrait photographers that will go do family sessions and look, Oh, I'm going to do mini sessions, you know, $50 get you 30 minutes, that kind of stuff. It's like you are establishing a market for yourself and you're creating bird dogs that will go out and go, Oh, I recommend using such and such photographer. They only did it for $50. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? The person who, who calls you up and is like, you know, knocking on your door, they're expecting you to do it for $50, mm-hmm. not expecting you to do it for $2,000. That's, right. that's a tough sell. If you, you establish that bottom market it's really hard to get up from there. Um, 
And, and to your point of, Hey, at a certain point, it's really not about the photography. That's the mentality that I try to get across to people all the time on this pod is that, look, if you're good enough to shoot a wedding, you're good enough to shoot a wedding and that's fine. But now you need to start focusing on all the other parts of being a wedding photographer, Mm -hmm. which leads me to my next question because I, I, I shoot at most two or three weddings a year. I, you know, I do it. I, I shoot weddings to stay sharp because I, mm, I, I personally think great. that a wedding photographer is one of the most rounded and complete types of photographers you can find. But I also think that the, the amount of stress that comes with a wedding is not worth it because there's a, still a part of me that wants to be an artist and all that. And mm. so it's like, I can't do that if I'm shooting weddings all the time, if I become a full-time wedding photographer. So I basically like do weddings through word of mouth. I don't advertise that I do weddings. I'll put them in my Instagram story and some model be like, Oh, I didn't know you did weddings. We do my wedding. That's <laughs> typically how it happens. Okay. I'll end up shooting a model's wedding or something like that. But, um, my question is shooting weddings. And I know you're not doing it anymore, but what skills and I, this could be a very long answer. What <laughs> skills has shooting weddings taught you as a photographer and how's that translated over into what you're doing now? Everything. I mean, it is, it, this might be a long answer. <laughs> it's mean, all good. Take your time. I, I, I'm like I said before, I'm happy to, to be retired from weddings, but, and, um, weddings taught me everything that I know as a photographer. Um, they, what, what I loved about weddings was it was a shotgun mashup of literally every kind of, every genre of photography that I love. Um, you know, uh, editorial and portrait and, um, details and products and, and, you know, the lavish details and, um, being able to challenge yourself, um, technically, but do it super fast. And, you know, you only have one chance as you know, all of the things, um, it, it, it really taught me to be laser focused and sharp, not just technically, but creatively, um, on the, on the photography side, on the business side, it helped me understand um, you know, what my value add is to, to my client, um, and how important their experience is, not just during the shoot or the wedding day, um, the, the entire experience. And I mean, experience wise, I mean, from the very first time that they encounter me online or on, on, on Instagram or wherever it might be. Um, even if it's word of mouth from a previous client, like every single touch point, it's, it's, you're delivering an experience and you have, have, um, at every point, like you can create what that experience is based on how you treat every client during every, um, touch point. Yeah. And also from a technical standpoint, you think about, uh, you know, weddings, you're taking some shots, uh, and natural, uh, natural lighting. You have to learn how to use off camera flash speed lights. You end up learning how to shoot in, you know, Catholic churches where they don't allow flashes and, uh, you know, not, even though the aesthetics in there may be beautiful, they might have stained glass windows. It may not light up your subjects. Well, mm-hmm. uh, you may, you know, you, you take, uh, shots, you do weddings in, uh, you know, small little chapels. There's just, you end up in vineyards. Like there's all these different experiences that teach you how to be an environmental, uh, photographer. And then, you know, you have to also learn how to pose non models. Mm-hmm. There's so many skills a wedding photographer can teach 
teach you. I personally just shoot them when I need a new lens. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, I'll take on a wedding. Like, well, you know, well, yeah, this new 85 1.2 came out. Uh, yeah, I'll take a wedding. <laughs> but, but no, I, I really do think that, uh, even though I, I, I think that it's wedding photographers tends to be punching bags a lot of the times, like people just like dismiss them. But I really do think that it's probably the hardest genre to get into and do well. Because you can, you can shoot wet. I mean, everything's tiered. You can shoot weddings at a lower level and you know, you have lower level clients. I don't mean like they're like lower level human beings, it's lower level budgets, mm -hmm. right? They have lower level budgets. And so their expectations can't be the moon. Um, but it's just, it, but even at those lower levels, if you are going to get called again to do weddings, you have to be good at it. Mm -hmm. Even at the lower levels, because that bride is going to look at those images at least once a week for the next however many years. And, you know, it'll go down to maybe once a month. But if you suck, they're going to remember you forever. <laughs> yeah, like, forever. You ruined my day. People get sued. People get sued over, over weddings. You got to have a good contract. That's another thing is wedding photography teaches you about contracts. Mm. Because, yes. I mean, gosh, and that's, that's, I think that's where we're going to roll into next is commercial photography. Because okay. you do have commercial photography. Yeah. So a lot of photographers, uh, I, we, I preached this on this episode, is that, you know, a lot of photographers they'll ask me like, Hey, what's your rate? And I'd be like, I'll give you a number and it'll be completely meaningless. <laughs> it has absolutely. Cause my rate depends on how much I need to save for retirement, how much I need to pay off gear. If I, I tend to pay cash for everything, but if I need to pay off gear, uh, Oh, do I want to do a five twenty nine for my child? Like how much money do I need for this or that? Or do I want to go on vacation? Like that's how I base my rates. I don't base my rates off of Oh, I, I go see what somebody else is charging. And then I go charge what they charge mm. because you're charging their rate. They, they, if, if, if they even did what I just said, based their rates off of real world things, you're still basing your rate off of their real world things, not your real not world your things. Own. You're not, what's your target for retirement? What's your target for this or that? And so, uh, I guess, I guess we'll, we'll go into the commercial conversation, but, uh, I want to hear your take on how to establish a rate, like yeah. whether it's a day rate or an hourly rate, because that can change based off of this. This could be a really long discussion, but I, we're here for it. This is what we like to do on this. Awesome. Pod. Awesome. That is one of my favorite things to talk about with, with growing photographers or even, even high level pro photographers. Um, how do we charge? Like, how do we create our rate? And that one of the biggest mistakes photographers make is they'll, you know, go to someone else's website and, and, you know, research and try to figure out what someone else is charging and then model what someone, someone else is doing. And you already kind of alluded to this modeling yourself after what someone else is doing. And you don't know the A to Z um, you're setting yourself up to fail straight off the bat. And what I see a lot of photographers doing is, um, you know, underpricing themselves and charging too little and hurting themselves and the industry all at once. Um, because they don't fully understand what the, first of all, what the cost of doing business is, um, to, to start off. So, um, that's what I like to start with. Like, what are my expenses? What, what is my lifestyle? How do I want to live? Um, how do I support my family? You know, what do I, what do I want to be doing five years from now? Is this, do I want to be doing exactly this or am I going to be building and growing to do something different? Am I going to be investing? Um, am I going to be, you know, what are my plans? Um, all that stuff gets considered when, when talking about rates. Well, on your website, I think it said something to the effect of you only take three jobs a month sort of thing, right? That, that plays into a formula. I'm going to, this is going to, how much do I want to charge? Well, if I'm only taking three jobs a month, I have to charge this. 
I have to charge this much for these three jobs. Mm -hmm. Like you have established, yeah, there's a minimum. And I don't think people think about that. And I think, I think the point that you made is it it hurts the industry. That's the one that I definitely want to drive home is if you devalue yourself and there's a collective of people who devalue themselves. That is what the industry is now in your in your town. There's a mm-hmm. bunch of people who devalue themselves and charge fifty dollars for mini sessions for families when they could be charging two thousand dollars for mini se- mm-hmm. or not mini sessions, but a full family session that they take their time and all that. Then those families will pay mm-hmm. if you if you know how to approach it right. Yeah, but. If you create a market to where families, well, all the photographers are charging fifty dollars for mini sessions, you just screwed everybody. Yeah, yeah. And 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 so, but anyway, I want to I want you to continue about um uh like something like a day rate, you know, like discuss discuss why you would charge a day rate for a commercial job because a lot of people they'll be like people uh, clients will even need to be educated on this like what do you charge per hour. I don't personally, I don't have an hourly rate because I don't, I don't, I only do jobs that take a half a day or a full day. Mm-hmm. Now there's exceptions when I'm shooting for agencies. Like I did this morning, I did a two hour job uh, for an agency, but uh, talk about why it's important to have half day rates and full day rates. Cause I'm sure you have one if you're doing a commercial job. Yeah. 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 Half day, full day rates. Um, that's just a, a, a simple um, way to make sure that that my expenses are met, that my, my, you know, that my time is, is respected and, and paid for. Um, and it also is kind of like a filter at the door. Um, like I don't want to be working with clients that, um, there is a fair amount of edu- education involved still, no matter what, but I don't want to be working with the client that says, you know, how much do you charge per hour? And we kind of figure it out and then they expect it to be, okay, that's all I'm going to have to pay. You know, like the, the day rate for, for my service is for my time as a, as a photographer, as a, as a creative, um, there's still, you know, other fees on top of that. Um, images are, are separate usage is separate. Um, uh, production is separate. Everything else is separate. So my day rate is for, for me as a creative photographer. Um, and that gets to be itemized and my clients understand that. Yes. And so if you're listening to this day rate, half day rate, that is to pay to get my ass off the couch (laughs) to go pay, to go shoot for half a day or go shoot for a full day. Mm -hmm. He talked about production. Oh, we need to cater we need to, we need to have we need to have food here for talent and stuff like that or we need to hire models or we need to research um, the locations we might want to shoot at that has nothing to do with your day rate that has everything to do with your production costs and your production rate mm-hmm. and then he brought up a very key word that starts with the letter u and it's called usage <laughs> and that's important because Oftentimes I, I, I find photographers, they're just like, I'm going to sell this job for a thousand dollars. Well, what did you sell them for a thousand dollars? I shot for a full day. I edited 2,500 photos and we did not establish any sort of licensing or you, we just, I just gave them the photos and they can do whatever they want with them. Like, so they can put them on a billboard mm, right? as you're driving down I 35, yep. you can see a big billboard for and a lawyer's office it. and you, you charge them a thousand dollars for that job. And so people don't want to educate up uh, photographers don't want to educate themselves on those line items. Those very important line items for commercial jobs. Mm-hmm. Like, when I, and I'm not, I'm assuming you do the same thing. When I have a corporation, a company reach out to me, the very first question I ask them is, 
what are we doing with these images? Mm-hmm. Oh, we're going to be using them on our website. Okay, well, it's a digital job. Oh, we're going to be using them in print marketing materials. Oh, we're going to be putting them on a billboard. That's mm. a much more expensive much job because I have to I have to put a value on how much money I think they're going to make off of this visual aesthetic that I've established for them, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's a much different conversation. Each each one of those questions is like it it's so important to even know how to know to ask because um, the, the, the next question is like, what's your ad spend going to be, <laughs> you know, how, how much are you putting into this campaign? So I know how, how much value this is providing. Like this is, these are important questions. If you're going to have a sustainable business, um, this business that is hiring you, they have a sustainable business. Why is that? Because they know where their money's going and they know how it's going to be spent. They know what it's going to take to bring in the rest of the business. You have to do the same as a photographer. Um, so if you're going to be, um, uh, hired by a, a, a commercial, um, uh, entity that's going to be using your images to make their millions, you, obviously deserve a, a, a healthy cut of that. So you must understand what they're going to be doing with the images at every point and for how long and make sure that you um, maintain rights to that. Um, one thing that that uh, it's really hard uh, because so much of the photographic community doesn't understand. Um, so and with the influencer, you know, whole movement um commercial space has kind of gotten a little bit wonky. Um, so photographers have to understand, um, we create the art, we maintain rights to the art and we get to dictate like the time frames that they get to be used and we can charge for that. Hi, I'm Jordan Groby and you're listening to the F11 photography podcast. You bring up a great point. We maintain the rights to the art in the last 10 years. I'm just going to throw out an arbitrary number. In the last 10 years, how many jobs have you done that didn't have a contract or a release? How many jobs? None. Correct. That is the one and only (laughs) answer. I I, I had a a really good friend of mine. And, you know, this this happens all the time. He's like, man, I, I shot this kid's party or whatever. And I gave a couple of the shots that I took to the magician. And the mom freaked out that I gave my shots to the magician. And I was like, well, did you have a release? He's like, no. I was like, so basically where we're at here is (laughs) you own the images, but the people you took the shots of have not given you any permission to use their likeness at all. And so the mom technically could tell the magician, do not use these shots. And and there are also minors involved probably because you said it was a kid's party. So it's like just not even thinking like, holy shit, maybe I should uh, think about that when Mm -hmm. I'm, when I'm doing a job. And I even tell people, I, I harp on this. Even if you're doing a TFP thing for your portfolio, you still get a release because you can't use that model's likeness without their, their signature. Yep. And, and so uh, I wanted to drive that point home. Every time you take pictures of people for your portfolio, even if there's no money exchanging hands, you have to have some sort of piece of paperwork where all parties are stating their intentions of what they want to do with the photos. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Yep. And even a little further than that, even if it's, there's no monetary exchange, um, just for the health of the relationship and for business moving forward, everyone should understand what's happening, what the exchange is, what, what terms are there, you know, um, usage included. Um, uh, I, I see this so, so often in Facebook groups and, uh, posts and things, uh, models upset and, and the conversation of who pays who and all of that, um, 
uh, and often after the fact, like a model wants to use a, an image in her, um, I don't know, a publication or something where she's going to be monetizing it. And then it's like this big thing, but there was never, never any, you know, anything signed or exchanged. So it's like, you know, it's just a big mess that can be avoided by a simple um, contract and signature. It certainly doesn't hurt to have a legal document where all parties are stating what they want to do with this project, right? So yeah, that's something that uh, even if you're taking families out in the fields and shooting them for little mini sessions, every single time you need a release, at yep. least a release. And then when you get into the more corporate stuff, you need contracts. Maybe if there's licensing, um, uh, that's something I want you to talk about with commercial. Um, and I've talked about it a little bit on this, but you explain the difference between like licensing and copyright buyouts and how often you run into that with commercial jobs. I think um, buyouts are happening more and more often, um, or at least the conversation for them is happening more and more often because um, I think people want to be as hands off as they can be, um, keeping track of of where things are and how long it's been, and they just kind of want to want to be able to to you know have the images and use them for for as long as they want to without without worrying about getting in trouble because they've gone over or or whatever. Um, so buyouts, um, I, I love the buyout conversation cause I'll, <laughs> I know right off the bat that it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a, an expensive exchange. Um, if I'm going to, going to like basically give away all future opportunity for any incoming revenue by this corporation buying the, the rights to these images, it's going to come at a hefty, you know, price tag uh, for, for sure. As it should. Yeah. 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 Because, you know, Coca-Cola is making some money off you. Absolutely. You're going to be making some money off Coca-Cola. That's right. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is funny, though, uh, how often I run into corporations that don't understand how this works. And it's like, have you never done a marketing campaign with mm. a photographer before? It's shocking. Because uh, actually it's funny. I ran into this one company that's like, we've been so uh, disappointed with all of our photographers in the past. And as soon as I started getting into a conversation with them about licensing and copyright buyout and stuff, they're like, we don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> and I was like, well, it sounds like you weren't working with commercial photographers. Yeah. So it sounds like maybe that's why you weren't happy with them. However, mm -hmm. once I started shooting out figures at them, they're like, whoa. Of course, the problem is this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is driving down the market. Inexperienced people who might take good pictures, a corporation goes, oh, well, we like those. How much are you want to charge? And then they they, you know, even though they take good pictures, they're not commercial photographers by trade. And so then they hire them to do this campaign and they just completely botch it because they don't understand they don't everything know. that goes into shooting a campaign and they keep getting upset with it. And then they finally run across somebody who knows what they're talking about. But because they were charged so little, now all of a sudden there's sticker shock when you're trying to charge them well into five figures for a job. Mm -hmm. And they're just like, whoa, the last guy charged us like $2,000. It's like, yeah. And that's why you're disappointed. Mm -hmm. Like, Pay the money, be happy. Right, right. Because once again, it's more than great photos. Um, there's so much more that goes in, especially in the uh, in the commercial space, um, that goes into uh, shooting a job than taking great photos. It's just, I mean, it's it's a mountain compared to uh, just shooting photos. Uh, the rest that goes into it. So if you're if if uh, someone gets hired because they take great photos, but they've never done it before or don't have um, have the experience, um, of what it takes. They're not going to get it right. Yeah. And I see this a lot with wedding photographers. Like I, the, like I'm in, I don't really use Facebook anymore, but I 
I'm in Facebook groups uh, that are photography related. I like to mentor people when I can. And, and the, the, I always, I see this like at least once a week. Someone's like, I'm, I'm, I want to shoot my first wedding. What lenses should I use? Mm. What camera body should I use? And all this, I'm just like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> If you're good enough to shoot weddings, I could throw you in a wedding and within two or three seconds. You're going to figure all that out because mm -hmm. you're that good. That has, you need to learn all the other parts yeah. of being a wedding photographer, sitting down and talking about a shot list, talking about who's going to be mad at each other. If you ask them to take a picture with mm -hmm. one another, yeah. when you're doing family <laughs> pictures, right. maybe the dad is cheating on the mom and with the secretary and you don't want to do the mom and the father, the father <laughs> and the daughter, uh, mother, the bride to get in the same shot. Cause there's some drama going on, you know, like. Learn the other parts of your job. It's not just about taking pictures. If that's all you want to do, be a hobbyist, mm. not a business owner. Yep. Yep. Goes into the experience, speaks into the experience that you provide. All of those points that you just mentioned are, are so much more important than what lenses you're going to have in your bag that day. For sure. You can get the job done with a 50 millimeter and, and that's it, you know? Um, but if you don't know, uh, um, you know, what, what details are important to the couple or, or what moments they're looking forward to getting captured or what relationships are within the family dynamic, then, you know, you could still fail regardless of what you, what equipment you have in your bag. You are listening to the F11 photography podcast. Well, I just wanted to ask one thing. Obviously there's a lot of structure, uh, when it, when it comes to being a professional photographer, especially, uh, doing more commercial uh, level stuff. However, as photographers, we do have that creative bone. And I know you do, because we've talked about it extensively already. Where do you get your inspiration from? What's what's the driving factor? Um, for me and Kevin, we, we draw from a lot of movies, that sort of thing. Where, where Where's the mojo with DOS? <laughs> the DOS effect comes from. Um, that's a great question, man. Um, I don't really have like a, this, this, this will show you my the abstract piece of me. I don't have like a go-to thing or a formula or anything like that. Um, I got my, like my creative background. Um, I was a fine artist, so I'm painting and sculpting and just kind of like creating, um, based on my mood or just what was around. Um, uh, and I love abstract, uh, and just beginning without having a final like image in mind or a final, like, thing that I'm working toward in mind and just like, but just creating, you know, whatever <laughs> that looks like. Um, if it's a job, that's a little bit, little bit different, but, um, my creativity just, uh, it just kind of comes through me and, you know, I don't really have, have a, um, a go-to it's more like setting my intention and, um, my mind in, in a place where I can, just close my eyes and, and just start and, and, and be okay with whatever the process is to get to the final result, whatever that happens to be. Cool. So, okay. So you've got your intentions set. You kind of, you have an idea of, of a rough end goal. Maybe if you squint, you can see it. Right. Um, how do you kind of like, how do you start off the, the, the session? Do you need like a warm up phase? Do you kind of just like know that, okay, these first 10 minutes are going to kind of be throwaway where I learn how you shoot or do you kind of like dive right in with a structure? You're like, okay, we need to get this, we need to get that. And then it'll come together as we go forward. Like what's that kind of process for you? Yeah. So if it's a client thing, 
Um, I, I have at least like, I'm not going to show up to a shoot or have a thing happening where, you know, extensive planning hasn't already happened. Um, so we, we can allow the creative process to happen, um, at the shoot, but we've kind of already structured what that looks like. So, um, it can be loose. Um, and there is that time frame where, you know, they've got to get comfortable with me and I've got to get comfortable with them and how they work and all the things. So we kind of allow for that. Um, and so a, a, a trick that I have, um, I'll be testing light or testing whatever. And, um, uh, in that short phase of me setting up and dialing in lights, um, I will be getting some gold like content because they aren't live. They aren't like expecting me to be, you know, catching, you know, taking photos. They're not like activated yet. Right. Right. So, um, a lot of times, and, and we'll just, you know, I'll be talking to them and, and getting to know them and, uh, hearing their story a little bit more follow up from, from previous meetings or whatever. Um, and I'll be getting some really awesome, authentic expressions, um, during that phase too. So, um, yeah, I think I think every stage of the process for me is is set up to um, to make my client comfortable and to um, the end goal is 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 to capture authentic expression. And however I can do that, whether it's as soon as we get to the studio or to the to the location, um, all the way to the to the end, um, that's my goal. So whatever the creative concept is around that, um, which can develop and flow and be fluid through the process. My intention is to create, uh, um, a safe, comfortable, um, platform for them to, to be able to express. So if I can put them at ease and even if it's a little, a little sideways, because I tell them I'm testing my lights, um, to make them feel comfortable and off guard, um, you know, that's a way for me to get awesome, shots yeah off the bat and that fluidity is so it's so important you know like it, it, it totally depends on the client like sometimes you go into the thing and you've got a structured mood board you've got it on screen and you're just like okay we're gonna go for that pose like we're, we're gonna see we're gonna nail that we're gonna start testing that pose out and some clients like they need that you know some do yeah and then other clients you you know you might have that mood board present you might have that posture present that you want to run through and it's kind of like a backup and really with this client you don't need those posturings you kind of just need to focus on facilitating that environment where they can thrive because once they're thriving they've got it in back of pocket yes. they can nail it yep yep yeah. perfect that's and that's it that speaks into like really understanding who you're working with and what what tool belt to put on once you get to the shoot you know like um you don't want to like i i don't, i feel like it it's it's a disservice to have just a structured blueprint for every shoot, every time, all the things, because every, every human being is different. Every subject is going to be different. They're going to require different, um, uh, different processes. So, uh, understanding that going into it, I think you can save a lot of time and a lot of stress by like marrying yourself to a process or an outcome that is just organically going to be different every time because your subject's different every time. So sometimes spontaneity is a good thing too. Absolutely. Having a sticking to a structure is a skill, but being able to improvise is also a skill. Yes. And you're, 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 you're the, the goal is to create like a a good end product. 
doesn't matter how you get there. Yeah. And so sometimes some, and we've talked about this several times on the show. Sometimes I'll have like a, a, a very awesome structure put together. And the second I start shooting, I'm like, this is not happening. Mm -hmm. It's time to just fly by the seat of your pants and get this done. And you end up, you end up, you end up where you need to end up. But it's, it's, it's always good to have a plan because if you just show up with no plan, that's where it's yeah. like, cause if spontaneity doesn't work, it's over. Mm-hmm. It's like, at least I can stick to something. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it's about having, having a plan, but having a backup and being okay with all of that being fluid. Do you have a way of weeding that out with the models? Um, uh, when I, when I, you know, when it comes down to like, everything's planned out, model walks in, we've you know, we do our pleasantries, we exchange our, Oh, hello. How you doing? Oh yeah. The weather's great. Um, and then we get past that part. Uh, usually I'll ask, I'll be like, when you're modeling, are you in your body? Like, do you kind of like, do you roll with an emotion and kind of like flow that around and kind of work with that? Or are you more so you have a set of poses in line? Like once you're on, you're on, you go through your routine and, you know, a little bit more rigid and usually it's one or the other. And then sometimes, you know, a model just won't know. Is there, is there something that you ask or something that you kind of use to weed out your approach to save you time and and energy figuring it out? Yeah. Most, I like to do a lot of like pre-work as far as that's concerned. So these are questions that I would ask before the actual shoot day. Um, um, you know, I ask the question, um, and I even like, I'll look at a portfolio. If we're talking about a model, I'll look at her portfolio or his portfolio, try and get some, find some video to see how they move and how they work. Um, uh, so I, you know, have some, some ground to stand on. Um, I don't like to, to just start cold at the studio and not have something, some sort of information about how this person works and how I'm going to be able to get, you know, get them to, to meet this vision that we've got. So, um, but yeah, I will ask, um, usually before the shoot, like I said, um, do you need to assume a character for the day or do you, um, is it good enough for, for us to put a solid mood board together, um, and create, um, a mood for you to, to adapt? Um, or can I show you this series of movements and can you emulate that? You know, like I'll, I'll find out what, how they work, Mm -hmm. um, but typically before the shoot. So we can kind of get there and press go and see how it works. And if we need to pivot, then we'll pivot. Dude, I bet your I bet your itinerary, your pre-shoot itinerary is just like chocked full. Like, <laughs> do you do you use Milanote or do you like how do you how do you put all this together? Because it sounds like you've got a lot of you've got a solid built-out strategy before even going into the shoot. Like, you don't start cold in almost any aspect. No, yeah. Um, I mean, the details are important. Um, uh, they're important for planning. They're important for the final outcome. So, um, I, you know, I use a, a solid CRM and I take notes and, um, and that's pretty much it. Right on. Yeah. Cool. And I, and I feel like, and this is one thing that, that I pulled from my wedding photography experience, um, throughout the process, the more that we can stay on the same page, um, in terms of like what we're doing and how we're going to reach our final outcome, the better. Um, and like I said before, everyone's different. So everyone's going to kind of require a a slightly different formula. But at the end of the day, if, if at each call or each touch touch point, we can walk away with a clear understanding of where we are and, and what that means in terms of what we're trying to get to, we're, you know, we're, we're more likely to reach our final destination and both be elated with what we come up with every step of the way. This is Jason Berkman, and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast.
We're here with Doss today, Doss Miller, and we are going to uh, finish this episode talking about the subject of marketing. Marketing. Okay. Because as we discussed earlier in this episode, uh, photographers, they think they just have to take good pictures. Now they've learned that, oh, they have to figure out how to maybe uh, price themselves. And uh, there's all these things that they need to learn to do. But marketing is one that I think photographers as a whole kind of suck at. <laughs> and I remember I, I hear these people that will say like, oh, well, I just use Instagram. It's like, okay, so let me get this straight. You're, you're putting all your marketing eggs in the basket of Meta, which is a company whose sole purpose is to keep people on their platform for as long as possible for advertising. That's your marketing strategy to drive your photography company. Am I getting this straight? <laughs> okay. So first of all, what are your thoughts on putting all your eggs in the Instagram basket? I already know the answer. And what should they be doing instead? <laughs> oh, the Instagram basket. Well, um, yeah, it's... If you if you don't pay to be visible, you're not. No matter how big your audience is, your audience isn't going to be seeing what you're putting out there. It's just it's just the nature of of how it's set up. Those platforms aren't in place to just be um, happy connectors like they like they show to be. Um, they won't be making money unless people are paying to be visible. So um, it's it's kind of like a hope marketing strategy, you know, like I hope the right person encounters me on my Instagram or, um, you know, happens to, to be shown my content on Instagram. Uh, otherwise it's, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's a waste, but it's kind of a waste. Well, even with just a little bit of research, these people could realize how much Instagram is screwing them over because they throttle. They, it's like, okay, let's say you have 10,000 followers. Okay. And you put out a really, awesome picture that you're proud of. You can go into the view uh, stats and it'll say, yeah, you have 10,000 followers, but we've only showed this to 350 people yeah. and maybe if you that. have 60 likes. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay. So, uh, I, you know, I'm guessing that if you have 10,000 followers and they've shown it to 350 people, my guess is that, okay, let's just say 3000 of your followers are bots or whatever. You still have 7,000 followers. And I guarantee you of those 7,000 followers, more than 350 of those followers are on Instagram that day. But for whatever reason, meta and Instagram decided not to show your picture to that person who has made the decision to follow you. And so that's why I think it is absolutely crazy that people just rely on Instagram to make their photography business grow. And then they sit there and they bitch about how little money they have or how little money they're making. And it's like, yeah, because you're depending on people whose sole purpose isn't even to promote your photography business to promote your photography business. They, they want people to stay on their app. That's all they want people to do. And if they show your picture, that's not, that may not help people stay on the app. It's like, it's like, that is an insane marketing strategy. I agree. And so, uh, what are some things that people can do? You said spend money and then, and what should they be spending money on? Uh, well, it, let's back up. Um, I think there's some effective strategies that don't have to, you know, be this huge, um, expensive, um, uh, strategy. So, uh, a lot of, it, well, if you have traffic to your website, if you have like, you know, if you've done the work in SEO and you, you know, and, and you're, you're ranking and all the things and you have a decent amount of web, web traffic, you can, uh, cater to your audience by showing up as an expert and providing value, um, doing things like lead magnets to develop a, an email list or, um, you know, some sort of, some sort of, I, don't, I hesitate to say funnel, but like some sort of 
thing that directs them through an experience um, on the lead portion. So um, you can capture their information and you can continue to market to them for free. Um, like for me um, in the branding space, uh, I can can um, get a, a healthy flood of leads by creating a, a, a lead magnet by, you know, piquing their interest on how am I going to have a successful um, image campaign um, and give them some tips on on what to do or how to how to improve their marketing dollar? Um, provide that lead magnet. They leave me their name and their their email, and then they plug into my automated you know um, drip campaign that's going to continue to feed them value um, for you know uh, now it's probably stretches out to a few months <laughs> as I just keep adding content to it. Um, and then when they're ready to uh, inquire further, there's calls to action in there that they can, you know, click on it and um, they can reach out and begin the process. So that doesn't cost anything. Um, and I feel like the more for a photographer these days, um, the more places you can show up for your ideal audience, the better. Um, so that's a way that, you know, might take a little time, um, it's not going to give you immediate um, immediate results, but uh, playing back into that every touch point, providing value and providing an experience that um, has people remembering you and remembering you as an expert and remembering you helping them out and um, you know solving their problems, smoothing their friction points before they've ever even contacted you to hire you. Um, so those people that have gone through channels like that that click the call to action to schedule a call. By the time we talk, they are already fairly comfortable. They're already um, assuming that, uh, and you know, I have a price range on my, my site uh, typically. So they're, they're not going to be the shoppers. They're not going to be offended to hear, you know, a five figure um, uh, cost for what we're going to be putting together. Cause they already kind of understand um, and they know the value they're going to receive. Um, then uh, the, the paid ads, Facebook, Instagram, um, depending on what genre of photography you do, um, some super solid uh, strategies based on ads, um, as long as you have a follow up in place. Um, I think a lot of people have this expectation that they're going to boost a post or, um, you know, uh, do a quick Facebook ad and it's going to, you know, their, 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 their door is going to get knocked down by people. Um, I think there's still a nurturing that needs to happen. Um, and it's got to be organized so that, you know, you're split testing and, um, those clicks and people are going to be served with other value, um, to get them to convert. Facebook is a necessary evil. Uh, I, I personally don't like Facebook, but the generation who has the most disposable income right now, they favor Facebook. Mm -hmm. The young kids, they use TikTok and all that, but I'm sorry, young kids don't have a lot of money. People in their 50s and their 60s have a lot of, they have most of the money, mm -hmm. okay? And so, yeah, I mean, targeting ads on Facebook isn't a bad idea, you know? Um, uh, speaking of uh, social media, are you on the threads game yet? <laughs> as soon as I got the notification, I was like, 
ooh, it's a new platform. It's probably going to be, you know, for a short bit, low, uh, low traffic, high visibility. Like, let me see what kind of traction I can get from. So yeah, I had a conversation with Peter McKinnon this morning. So I guess, I guess, yeah, I I guess it's, uh, it's working. Yeah. And Brad Stuber, the goalie of Austin FC follows me. So yeah. So it's like, it is, it it is funny though, watching people on new social media platforms, because I I saw that we saw this on on clubhouse. People would get in there and they'd be like, okay, so you know, you'd have to sort through the BS because some people were experts and some people pretended to be experts. But you always get these people like I saw this happen like when people left, uh, when people got bored at Clubhouse, there's this uh, space of photographers who went over to Twitter, the NFT people. Um, <laughs> we won't get into that. We already did that in the last episode. Uh, but uh, we called it non-fungible bullshit. That was the <laughs> name of the last episode. Uh, but anyway, uh, these people that get in like, oh, it's a brand new social. I need to establish myself as an expert. So they're like, they'll ask a question and they try to get people to like engage and get, you know, stuff going. And it's just, it's just so cute watching them all. It's like, <laughs> I know what you're doing. Like you're trying to pretend, you're trying to get in on this thing before everyone else. And, you know, I, I, I started off like, I think my second post, I, I said, where am I, where are my film photographers at? And I was like, wait, you're being one of them. And so I was like, nope, I'm just, don't do that. Don't, that's not why you do this. So I only did it on one post. And from, from that point on, when I was like, I'm just going to post my work and then, you know, I'll engage in conversations. Hopefully this place won't turn into a dump like Twitter. Um, cause Twitter is just like, Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's but, um, mess. yeah, it's terrible. Uh, I just, you know, I used to use Twitter as like a news ticker because the, I mean, you just, because you know you, you turn on cable news and it's just like sensationalism. The world's going to end. I'm just like, I just want to see what happened. Like, I just where where's that version of getting information? Like, just tell me what happened, and then I can make my own informed decision. Mm-hmm. But anyway, hopefully, Threads doesn't turn into that. But I, I going off on a little tangent there. Um, I, I, I guess I need to follow you on Threads then. So, <laughs> so. yeah, I'm still trying to decide what. Like what did it like? I think it's trying. Think, I think like, it's trying to decide what yeah, it is. Yeah. Because <laughs> like, because like for me, like I like that was one of the cool things about the early days of Clubhouse is you'd end because everybody was on lockdown, including famous photographers, mm-hmm. and so you'd end up in rooms with like people like. Um, uh, you know, some celebrity photographers, you know, people like Tyler Shields and stuff like that. And you're just like, holy crap, I'm mm-hmm. talking to people that, like I would never normally get to talk to. Yeah. And you could just like pick their brain because they're literally on their couch for the next two, three months. Yep. And so that that actually did some cool things for my career and getting my foot in the door with certain people. And so, you know, maybe maybe threads will be the same thing. But who knows, man? Who knows? But um, Thank you for coming out today. I want to, everybody, uh, put your hands together for Dawson. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Uh, We'd love to have you on again sometime in the future. Uh, I had a million topics I didn't get to talk to you about, but uh, that does it for today's episode. If you're listening, uh, you can follow us at f11pod.com. You can uh, use the handle F11Pod on uh, Twitter, which we never use, and Instagram, which we sometimes use. Uh, maybe we'll do threads. We'll do a F11Pod thread. I don't know what we'd do with it because I just uh, actually put the stuff on my uh, Kevin Deal threads, but whatever. Uh, all of you who uh, are listening, who stuck around, we thank you. I hope you learned something. I thought DOS was an awesome guest to have. And uh, until next time, kids, chase light, not algorithms. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information,
information about this podcast, go to www.f11pod.com.